This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by my colleague Zed Reed, our Africa and LNG editor, and Hamish Penman, digital journalist. And it feels like only a couple of days since we've done this, guys. Delightful. Delighted to be back, of course. That's that's not a very good way to be kicking off the podcast with sarcasm like that. Come on, come on, do better, Alistair. Anyway... We'll kick off this week with, uh, well, breaking news as we record this morning, that uh, Shell has named a new CEO to replace that going Ben Van Buren. Hamish, uh, take us through the latest. Yeah, I kind of thought the entire week that, oh, nobody's going to put out any big announcements this week. Who's going to who's going to risk it being gazumped? Um, well, Shell, apparently, because <laughs> they have announced that uh, after rumours that Ben Van Buren will indeed be leaving uh, at the end of the year. Um, like I said, there were reports about this last month, um, maybe even early this month, actually, but they were unconfirmed at the time. Um, but it's now been, yeah, while Sawan, and I hope I pronounced his name right, I'm sure we'll hear it a lot more in the uh, the coming months, but is uh, Shell's head of integrated gas and renewables. He will uh, take up the reins, effective from January 1st. Um, ben Van Buren, he'll continue working as an advisor on, uh, to the board until June 30th of next year, at which point he will um, head for the exit door. So it's been, was kind of uh, putting together his uh, profile and overview of his time at Shell. And it, I think you'd struggle to find eight or so more tumultuous years to uh, to be chief executive of an oil company. You joined, what, a few months before uh, industry downturn in 2014-15. There was then a period of pretty stagnant recovery for a while. Industry downturn two with covid a uh, big shift towards low carbon and um, and then um, oil back to where it is and shell making huge huge profits. So he's seen uh, all sides of the all sides of the equation. So, but yeah, big change at the top. Um, be interesting to see if it signifies a, a step change in Shell's strategy. I don't see why it would. Mr. Sam has been very uh, complimentary of um, Ben Van Buren in his uh, outgoing statement, although I can't imagine he would have. Uh, wasn't wasn't going to stick the boot in, was he? As he, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> no. But would he have slated it? I mean, give I it mean, give it six months. You know, <laughs> what have I inherited? <laughs> no, I'm sure it will all be grand. Um, but yeah, interesting change at the top, and um, it's because uh, Ben Van Buren seems to have been such a lightning rod figure for a lot of people. I think he, for many environmentalists, he was kind of the um, prime example of the oil industry. A kind of white middle-aged European man so I don't know whether I don't know whether his uh, going now will, will change things at all because he did attract so much negative attention I remember somebody jumping up on stage in Edinburgh to confront him and things like that so I'm sure he'll be looking forward to a well under rest. Do you remember uh, that Joe Lysett Channel 4 documentary yeah. or something? Joe Lysett's Got Your Back or something it was called. Yeah he dressed up as Ben Van Buren and started a well, there's no other way to put this. He started, um, um, made it appear that uh, feces was coming out of his mouth as he spoke about climate, oh, pl- yeah, climate pledges. Oh. Yes, yes, that's that's maybe the eloquent way of putting that. Um, yeah, very uh, delicately put, Alistair. Um, very delicately put. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, not not my not my normal fare for this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. He has become something of a lightning rod for for climate activists. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, we you know we we do we do sit in on the quarterly calls and 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 speak to to them uh, for that. He, he he has come across quite pragmatic, 
um, from the, the few times that I, I've spoken to him um, via that means. Um, but yeah, I, I was just, I think, I think your point there about the, the tumultuousness of, of the time, I was, I was just kind of thinking, um, what will Ben Van Buren be remembered with for Shell? And I, I guess a comparator might be like Bob Dudley for BP. When he stood down, there was quite a lot made of him helping BP recover in the wake of Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico. And I don't think there's anything quite of that magnitude um, for Shell, at least internationally in terms of the, the press coverage um, for like an environmental incident. But certainly in terms of the the political, uh, yeah, tumultuous times to be leading a company like Shell, uh, as you say, uh, Hamish, a couple of major downturns, this huge shift in strategy towards uh, low carbon and renewables. Um, it, it's hard to think of a of a uh, another time like that, really, to be to be in, on the, at the forefront. I think what he might be remembered for a little bit for, though, um, kind of going back to the dual asset of it all, is this uh, the, the Dutch court ruling we had in May 2021, and how Shell's been responding to that as well. Uh, quite a divisive figure. What did you have hit? Um, the new CEO and the sweeper, Ed, or, or are you surprised by that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think it's very interesting, and I think you know, obviously, you know, uh, looking at someone and you know, sort of a forty-five-year-old, I'm just like crumbs. I mean, mm. to be running uh, Shell, age forty-five, feels like I don't know what have I been doing with my life. <laughs> uh, I need to uh, maybe retrain uh, as, as as some sort of uh, gas process engineer. But I think, I mean, I think, I think in terms of sort of you know, like what you know, what 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 you know, Shell might be looking at. In terms of you know, would this give it a new kind of a direction? I think there. Are, I mean, it's quite an interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, obviously, you know, they they both come from sort of a bit of a gas background, and and so one has got that sort of Oman, sort of Qatar, sort of you know, which I think is is clearly a real sort of a value driver historically for Shell, and I, and I, and I feel like you know, sort of in the future, where you know, obviously there's kind of a question mark over return to renewables. Although obviously at the moment it'd be a nice place to be a, an electricity generator, but I mean historically, I think you know, sort of that that sort of it, it feels like a sort of like a real sort of safe pair of hands in terms of that sort of gas sort of focus and that sort of Middle Eastern just immense amounts of cash that they you know they're getting from you know for instance that GTL plant in uh, in Qatar so i think you know it, it feels like a like a like a pretty safe decision um but uh yeah i think i think also um a, a very sort of a gas focused decision to me mm, yeah maybe for 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 the times that we are living in um yeah maybe that's the right the right call. Uh, I mean, did, did anybody ever think, I mean, I, I don't know why, and I think it was just kind of, Hamish, you mentioned the earlier uh, unconfirmed reports that Ben Van Buren would be stepping down. I don't know why, I kind of thought they might go Sinead Gorman for this. I, I don't really have anything to substantiate that other than she seems to be a high climber. But, uh, you know, I think she not long ago replaced Jessica Yule as, as CFO, so perhaps that would have been, uh, maybe I, just, I, I rung up the ladder too far too quickly. Um, but, uh yeah, as you say, maybe a, a safe a safe pair of hands, but um, yeah, I mean, I, well, well, will he become a lightning rod for climate activists the way that uh, Ben Van Buren uh, has? Maybe, maybe not immediately, um, <laughs> but you've got to think. Probably Such is the nature of the job, right? but it won't have changed that much, surely. I mean, I think <laughs> it, you know, it, given that it feels like more of the same. Obviously, he's kind of like a gas and renewables division, but I mean, I think you know, I think anyone who's in that that top spot. Is going to be obviously the sort of the public face, isn't he? And I think you know the uh, the, the the Joe Lysets of the world. I'm sure uh, uh, are thinking about how best to uh, target the new man. 
So I was going to say, he's very well educated. He's got a um, master's degree in chemical engineering from McGill University of Montreal and most notably an MBA from Harvard Business School as well. So it's um, a bright bright cookie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's also three children and they uh, they gave his wife's name as well in the announcement as well, which I thought was quite a nice touch. Same for Ben Van Buren as well. Nice, nice little look behind the curtain of these men that we seem to write about all the time but actually have very little idea about really <laughs> well i mean yeah they, they, they i think i think that's probably fair to say that ben van buren has been pretty private about his his uh his, his personal life to, to the extent that he would have one i can't imagine he's got that much free time um bernard looney i, I think on bp by a comparison has maybe been a bit more open about that i think um you know this is Activism around mental health. Uh, hell, even if you look at his Instagram, I think he talks about his time on a farm in Ireland in his, his younger his younger days. Um, uh, and I think, I think in terms of the social media side of it, in terms of being the public face of things, I think Bernard Looney's probably done a better job uh, on that front. And I'd be interested to see to the extent. Uh, this new CEO has the appetite for that kind of thing at Shell. I, I wonder whether Shell itself doesn't have the appetite for that kind of thing, but. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Ed. It's kind of like, well, what do I do in my life? You know, but at the same time, do you want this job? Uh, do, do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure it's very well paid, it's high profile, and you know all the rest of it. Um, but I, I don't know. You've, you've, I, I imagine it'd be a tough thing to weigh up. I'm sure this guy's very ambitious and has been has been targeting it. But I, I just wonder. I just wonder about the the flip side of this coin. Like, it's a big burden to take on, and uh, it certainly will leave you kind of open to all kinds of criticism from activists and whatever else. It comes with the territory, of course. But uh, but yeah, I imagine it'd be one of the more high pressure roles <laughs> out there as well. But also also fairly well remunerated, right? Sure. I, mean, I think. Sure. Uh, you know there are there are some there are some pretty tangible rewards. I imagine the uh, <laughs> the golf clubs around Ben Van Buren's house must just be rubbing their hands currently, Ooh. thinking, thinking he's going to have more time to spend with his clubs. I presume he plays golf. Uh, everyone plays golf in the oil industry, it seems. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no. Well, we will look forward uh, to the remuneration reports coming up from Shell in, <laughs> in due course. Uh, okay, well, thanks, uh, Hamish. Uh, and next up, we'll have uh, a talk about what's afoot with Africa Oil. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, Ed, so uh, in your piece, it says your uh, Africa Oil CEO is uh, famously bullish. And from what I can see, they've got planned. That seems to stand up uh, quite nicely. Indeed, indeed. So uh, Keith Hill had a, had a sort of a town hall meeting uh, this week. And as, as, as I said, you know, famously bullish. I mean, like, you speak to him in, in you know, the, the, the middle of the, of the darkest downtown. <laughs> He's like, $100 oil. 
uh, without a doubt um he's a big fan of exploration you know no matter what's going on he's always like yeah let's go and you know do something so it's it's always you know there are there are, there are certainly times when uh, speaking to keith hill is a is a bit of a refreshing tonic now obviously um you know with uh stronger oil prices he's very much in his element 200 uh, really... it's a sort of <laughs> well yeah exactly just keep keep on keep on aiming for the stars keith um <laughs> so uh, yeah so it, it, it was it was really interesting hearing the sort of the extent of the plans that they've got so africa oil has this kind of quite interesting sort of two-track approach they've, they've they've got some projects themselves but they've also invested in some some other sort of uh junior explorers who are doing some some things around africa so in terms of sort of direct exposure they've weirdly got this sort of stake in uh, some really quite substantial nigerian oil fields um, which just generate an incredible amount of cash. And I mean, I think, you know, they did the deal a few years ago and when, you know, everyone was like, oh, don't know if this is going to work. You know, the, you know, what is the future for the oil industry? Turns out Keith Hill was absolutely correct. And now he's basically drowning in uh, buckets of cash. Buckets of cash. presumably a, a nice problem to have for, uh, you know, someone <laughs> who's, I mean, there are worse things as, uh, as, as the yeah. new head of uh, CEO is going to find. Head of Shell's going to find, um, but so, um, so 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 in terms of their sort of direct exposure with Nigeria, it's a case of just like just sort of stand there, keep your pockets open, and and just keep on you know sort of accepting these massive wedges of cash that come through the door every now and then, which is which is nice. Sort of offsetting that is this is this kind of project in in Kenya where they found uh, with Tallow Oil um, oil in the sort of an inland sort of uh, Kenyan basin must be more than 10 years ago um but they've just been unable to make it work so they have been saying you know, they've got these plans that they found about half a billion barrels of oil but it's just a question of how you get it from that spot to to an export market and they have been talking about it for a long time in 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 the piece you know keith hill has been saying that he's been saying that it's going to be done this month pretty much every month since 2019 so when he said it's going to be done this month you know i was like oh yeah yeah okay but at the same time a, a sort of a fairly substantial pinch of salt with that keith um but you know still i mean that that does feel like obviously you know there is a kind of a, a renewed interest in these kind of uh these, these upstream projects and you know a couple of indian companies have been have been named as, as sort of being interested in this uh this lokachar basin opportunity so it feels like maybe that's sort of starting to come together. And then on this, in this sort of second string, this kind of uh, portfolio investment uh, scheme that, that Africa Oil has got, they've invested in three companies. So Impact, Eco-Atlantic and Africa Energy. And they're all doing things around, uh, around Africa. So in the near term, uh, Eco-Atlantic and Africa Energy are going to be spudding a well offshore South Africa. It's good, maybe you know, sort of a couple of hundred million barrels of oil. So it's not a, it's not a, not a, not a, not a kind of a game changer like Venus and Graf, mm. which you saw kind of come in earlier this year offshore in Namibia. But still a very nice, uh, very nice find to make. Shallow water, and so there, you know, there, there's a chance that it could really kind of be, you know, kind of moving into kind of commercialization if it comes in quite quickly. And then they've also got this sort of exposure to these sort of other bigger projects. So Impact has a stake in Venus, which I just mentioned, which some people have been saying may have, you know, 15 billion barrels of oil. I mean, who knows? You know, it'd be interesting to see how the appraisal work kind of comes on that. Appraisal should be coming later this year, obviously operated by Total. 
and then sort of uh, also uh, operated by Total, the uh, the French company has a a stake in a in a, in a big field offshore of South Africa called uh, Lipert, which we discussed last week on the program. Uh, which uh, Keith has access to through uh, through Africa Energy, so they've got a number of sort of uh, plates in the air, and obviously that's quite a, a, quite a nice problem to have about about where to look. But it it just felt like a like a jam packed sort of hour or so of Keith Hill running through these various options that this company has got for sort of expansion and growth, and it kind of feels like it's a, it's a nice problem to have. Keith Cash Bucket Hill, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's it. Uh, well, I'm sure it is. Yeah, uh, I mean, to, to how? I guess my question is, how common is it to find a company like this? Because I mean, I, it just seems maybe unfair to say all over the place. It sounds like they're having a bit, quite a bit of success. But I mean, how common is it to find a company that will be doing work in, say, yeah, well, yeah, Nigeria and and Kenya? I mean, that's that's on different different coasts, for example. I'm sure it's a different business environment in, in every different country. I mean, is it? Is it quite common to find a company like this with the portfolio spreading? No, no, no. I think. I mean, I think it's it. It is. It is. It is pretty unusual. I mean, I think so. Essentially, Africa Oil is kind of part of the uh, the Lundin Group, that sort of Swedish kind of corporation of sort of natural resource players, which obviously has a finger in a lot of sort of different pies. So I think that's kind of really that that kind of way in, and obviously that provides an extent to which you know there is a sort of institutional sort of knowledge about so many different parts of, of Africa and, and, and beyond. So I think I think I mean I think that, that that's kind of clearly the kind of the uh, the umbrella under which they're working. But yeah, you're right. I mean it is um slightly extraordinary to, you know, be sort of, you know, have sort of East African, West African and sort of South African, you know, sort of bits in the air at the same time. And I suppose you know for 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 you know for most small companies it would be too much right mm. and I think you know obviously there there are those only so many so many hours in the day that that an executive can have but I suppose that's possibly what that appeal of that sort of portfolio sort of investing in other investors sort of approaches that um Keith essentially sort of you know reduces the direct involvement in say you know Namibia or South Africa which obviously all have all have their own sort of challenges right around energy access around policy changes around around environmentalists as we were sort of discussing last week and that way in which kind of Africa Oil can kind of I suppose kind of farm out those particular risks to other companies but still kind of stay involved it's it's quite an interesting model to to have but obviously also there's kind of a question about where next do they go with it, right? So Africa Oil has these stakes, quite substantial stakes in these three sort of junior explorers. But what's the next step, right? Do they, you know, when these companies do or don't make progress, when these wells do or don't come in, if they if they are successful, what then? You know, do, does does that, how does Africa Oil turn those stakes into actual, you know, cash money? Cash rules everything around me, as a, as a, as a more famous man than me once said. So, you know, how 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 do you, how do you capitalize on that? I guess one of the things we constantly talk about in some 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 of these areas, not all, um, is the infrastructure question um, as well. I mean, can can a company like this? Afford to uh, yeah, and if if they if they strike oil, if they're successful in, in their exploration plans, can they afford to get them up and running? Well, I presume they would probably be able to find a, a farm out partner here and there if need be. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting one to contemplate. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think I mean that's why there are you know these kind of rumors swirling around endlessly about about a sale process, right? I mean, I think you know particularly in say you know Venus, where you know we there was a story you know kind of uh, recently about rig rates going to what was it five hundred thousand dollars a day. I mean, I think you know with that sort of a, that sort of a game and you know um, you know impact a you know a small you know kind of privately held company. Um, how does it pay its way? I mean, I think, you know, you're looking at well costs of, I don't know. I mean, historically, we've seen well costs going as, you know, up to sort of, you know, $100 million, right, for a single well. And this is, you know, going to be one of the deepest wells, you know, wells in the deepest water ever drilled. It's something like 3,000 meters. Can impact, you know, to what extent can impact afford to kind of keep that, that, that kind of ball in the air? Yeah. But at the same time, it's not the sort of thing that you want to get out of too early, right? Because if it is 15 million barrels, and obviously you'd have to apply some sort of discount to that, but that, you know, sort of a, a stake in that 15 million barrels is a fairly significant <laughs> uh, interest. So how do, you, how do you kind of, you know, find that balance between exposure and, and, and overexposure is, is a tricky one. But I think, I suppose that's why that kind of well offshore uh, South Africa, which is kind of coming up in the next, say, sort of 10 days, two weeks or so is quite interesting because it's shallow water, it's fairly close to shore. So you're thinking, you know, it's not going to be a massive uh, field, but it is going to be something that is uh, that, that that could be kind of commercialized on a sort of a fairly sort of a small scale basis. So I mean, that that is quite an opportunity. But I agree. Something like Venus, something like Liper, you know, Impact Africa Oil is going to have trouble financing a billion dollar sort of uh, spend through to through to development, through to production. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Ed. And I look forward to seeing how Mr. Hill's uh, optimism uh, <laughs> continues to, to escalate uh, going forward. It sounds like Long may it go. plenty to be cheerful for. Uh, great. Okay. And next we'll discuss uh, some more positive news, this time for the UK's onshore decommissioning market. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so some uh, fat stats coming your way now, lads, on decommissioning. Uh, I know that gets everybody very excited. So uh, there's been some growing concern, I think it's fair to say, about the share of offshore decommissioning work kind of in the UK going overseas. In recent months, we've seen things like the Bray Bravo, um, which is a big, heavy, uh, kind of older platform topside going over to VATS in Norway. Uh, we understand the Foynavon FPSO is going to Denmark. There's been some consternation there for UK suppliers that were bidding on that work. So we decided to do a little bit of digging and try to find out the, the lay of the land, um, which was a bit of a journey in itself, really, which I can tell you about. But in effect, it, it the picture is quite positive, actually, despite um, reports to the contrary. Uh, the, the UK 
according to some FOI stats we received um, and filled in some gaps with other companies, the UK is winning about two-thirds of the vessels and installations coming from its own waters, and they're being scrapped, recycled, decommissioned in UK yards. That's based on figures for 2018 through to 2021. If you go by tonnage and thereby value, the figure is likely much more uh, because we've had the huge things like the Brents and the, the Ninians landed in the UK, which is obviously uh, better than a small kind of Southern North Sea, normally unmanned gas platform. So yeah, our, our FOI, um, and, 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 that's, and that's positive news firstly, let's talk about that. Um, there's also a, a good news story to be telling about the, the piece on well plugging and abandonment, which actually accounts for nearly half of the overall value of decommissioning anyway. So as it stands, it actually looks like the UK is in a pretty good position, despite some high profile cases where things have gone overseas. Uh, we, we report quite often about Frederiksaven in Denmark, which uh, which is a, a world-class facility that uh, that is winning work. And I guess there needs to be some realism as to, you know, the fact that some of it will go overseas, and that's totally fair. But anyway, uh, our FOI to the, the North Sea Transition Authority, um, we used that plus some information from Harbour Energy, um, which kind of showed that the industry was in a healthier shape than we might have expected. The, the FOI, there's no way of telling this without going into it. Uh, you know, there were some big gaps in the information we got back. Um, I think some of the of the information held by the regulator, there was a huge chunk of about 20, or not quite 20, but over a dozen certainly, um, installations um, that had not been filled in, as in, this information is not known. Uh, so that kind of um, had a couple of issues for us. Um, and then we went, and then it turned out those dozen or so vessels were all Harbour Energy uh, assets. And I eventually went to them and asked, well, where, where have these gone? Have these gone overseas? And I was what I wasn't expecting was Harbour to say that all of them were uh, landed in the UK. Uh, I knew some were in Teesside, uh, but not necessarily all of them. But that is what happened. And that obviously... Uh, flipped the narrative of the piece uh, a little bit somewhat, I think it's fair to say. Um, I had gotten some comments together about these unknown assets. You can imagine what they said about concerns on jobs. That's my mistake. It's a lesson here about uh, plucking holes in their story before you write it. <laughs> well done, Alistair. But anyway, yeah. A lesson for us all. A lesson for us all. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it, there's a separate point here about record keeping at the NSTA. The fact that they didn't have any records of where these things were kept is... Perhaps a concern, and I'm sure one that they will address. It's probably also fair for us to say that this is information that they could have gained from any of the operators at any time, should they simply have asked them. And of course, there's other sources like Energy Voice that hold this kind of information as well. Um, but yeah, it, there's, there's a record-keeping issue here. I guess push comes to shove, though. Um, the story is the UK is winning the majority of the vessels from its waters going to UK yards. That's been the case for 2018 through 2021 anyway, based on this, about two-thirds or so. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops going forward as more and more assets are removed. We are expecting more in the future. And of course, there have been things like the Curlew FPSO, which was getting decommissioned in Dundee, but had to be stopped um, and taken to Norway because Dundee, it turned out, didn't have the facilities. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's where we stand. Um, maybe to flip it into a question for you guys, um, we in the UK, I, I would think it's fair to say you're going to have a lot of scrutiny about how you are decommissioning your asset. And if anything goes wrong, you can 
be pretty damn sure that someone's going to report on it. Is it easier to go uh, overseas um, where there may not be so much scrutiny? That's not to say there wouldn't be in Denmark or Norway, but just uh, broadly speaking. Uh, to what extent do we think that may or may not play in the minds of companies that are making decisions about where to uh, where to land their vessels? There is more to it than just that, which we can talk about, but maybe to talk about that firstly. I would say that Norway and Denmark are probably, well, they are highly regulated environments. Um that companies and and um, regulatory bodies report on these incidents when they happen. I mean, the Norwegian um, Petroleum Authority, is it the PSA? They're really on the ball with calling out companies um, and submitting audit reports into things. So I, I wouldn't see that as a as a big driving force. And, and certainly if these sorts of things are reported um, in Danish or Norwegian press, you'd be sure that we'll rip it off and put it on our side. So... Um, <laughs> so <laughs> The truth usually does out, so I don't know whether that's a, a huge part of it. I would understand that argument more, perhaps, if it was going to to the Middle East or to to Asia, but not not um, Europe. I do think it's very interesting, though, to have um, stats and and FOI stats that run in such direct contrast to to the narrative at the time. Yeah, and also I mean, when you when you go when you submit FOI requests, you a lot of the time you broadly know how they're going to come back. You are simply trying to confirm something. Confirm suspicions or trying to kind of show the the um, the extent of of an issue. So to have that come back uh, in such a way was was um, was quite rare, I thought. And I don't maybe think of where I mean where are all these projects going? What there's been a bit up at Shetland. Um, there's the Spirit Energy one in Methyl Teesside for the Brents, but there kind of seems to be this argument that a lot of jobs are. Well, there's not been the amount of decommissioning jobs in the UK being created because the work's simply going overseas and and that's a big travesty. But a lot of the work's coming here and there still don't seem to be the jobs. So how are we squaring that particular circle? So in terms of so so you're saying that two thirds basically of, of, of kind of UK installations are de- decommissioned locally. So how does that stack up with, say, Norway, right? Because obviously some of the work is going to Norway, but so is is Norway is, is a two thirds of installations in Norwegian waters going to Norway as well, or, or is it does Norway do Norwegian decommissioning facilities capture all the Norwegian stuff and also some of the UK stuff? So, like, how does how does the UK's decommissioning uh, kind of grasp of its own stuff? balance out against kind of the competition so yeah yeah no that's a, a very good question uh, the answer is i don't know um but what i do know is uh norway has got far more stringent uh, local content rules than the uk uh the uk's local content rules decommissioning is pretty much as follows uh we will hit 50 percent uh on a voluntary basis not mandatory um by 2030 and that is not a a legal target; it's a voluntary target. Um, yeah, Nor- Norway is, as as you know, is is far more heavily unionized. Uh, if you look at any of the announcements coming from things like, yeah, I mean, any project from Equinor in the past few any you know x number of years, um, uh, if there's an announcement about investment, you can be sure that there is something in there saying x percent of this will go back to local content jobs uh, in in Norway or you know companies in Norway. Uh, I think, yeah, I think those, I think both of those countries are are far better uh, at this kind of thing than the UK. Um, what they might encounter, though, uh, and what UK yards will encounter um, before long, if they haven't already, is um, they're they're going to find that offshore wind 
is a far is, is, is likely a more lucrative and long term prospect than decommissioning. Decommissioning by its very nature tends to be kind of single job and then you're back to tendering for the next one, whereas offshore wind farms as clearly are massive, um, uh, certainly the ones for Scotland are. Uh, and there's a lot of a kind of a pipeline of work there. Um, and we've already seen it. There's a little bit of this element of competition for space uh, for, for these yards. We, do you want to spe- you know, spend your time uh, decommissioning or do you want to spend your time on a kind of a, a long-term, quite likely more lucrative or potentially more lucrative job in the offshore wind sector? Uh, and I, I guess as more offshore wind work comes on, we will probably see more, um, you know, UK assets get sent overseas. And and again, you know, perhaps uh, if we're talking about the economic value of it, perhaps we don't need to get bogged down as much. And this is coming from somebody who's just written a story and done an FOI about it. But uh, perhaps we don't need to get bogged down in, in, in the, the where it gets landed of it all. Um, because, again, about half of the value of the overall value, ever, taking everything into account, um well, I mean, Ed, you mentioned rig rates, for example, you know, uh, because of the, the expense of hiring a rig to plug and abandon a well, particularly for open water wells, um, you know, plugging and abandonment is, you know, about half of the overall value of uh, of decommissioning. So, and the UK uh, is doing very well on that front, um, probably over 60% um, of, of the wells are, are done by UK companies, I believe, or so I'm told. Uh, and we do have good examples of that, things like well safe solutions, um, uh, and, and others in Aberdeen that are are, are really claiming that work. So, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one. I think there's probably going to be more to be said about this here in terms of the local jobs and, 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 and Scottish jobs as well. You know, the number in Scottish waters, you know, are they coming to Scotland necessarily? Probably not. Um, there's probably more to be said uh, as this evolves, but uh, but yeah, we'll park that for now. But that's the latest picture on it. And that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.